1: This week on Meat and 3, we're telling the stories behind iconic dishes. We learn what it will take to save New York's most famous egg cream, discover the importance of the goat neck in the East Village, and take a trip to India for delicious flatbreads.
2: Our
3: customers who come in to get egg creams and t-shirts, they love to talk about their childhood or their teenage years or their college years.
2: I was living in uh, Nepal in northern India. And out there, there's a real famous dish, a classic dish, I should say, is called paya.
1: Parate Wali Gali, or as it awkwardly translates in English, the lane of the stuffed flatbread makers, is probably one of the most popular food streets in Old Delhi. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary person who inspires me with the way they've overcome obstacles and made the most of opportunities. And along the way, they've created a really great life. Today, my guest is Henrietta Lovell, who calls herself the Tea Lady. That sounds very demure, particularly when you find out that she's British. But Henrietta, from what I've read in her recent book, Infused, is perhaps demure in some settings, but quite an adventurer. Her book is about her love of tea. It is, in fact, a love letter. Her business selling and blending some of the finest in the entire world. Welcome, Henrietta. Hello. Lovely to be here. So you haven't always been the tea lady. In fact, you're working for a large multinational corporation doing financial documentation, which it sounds intimidating, but maybe not as much fun as being the tea lady. When did you make that switch? And, and how did that come about?
3: I was actually here in uh, in New York City working here. And it was a a life that was um, considered from the outside to be quite successful because I had a big pay packet and I had a swanky apartment in the Upper West Side. And I traveled a lot. But it was really boring thing to talk about. If you're sitting next to me at a dinner party, you'd be like, oh my God, after five minutes, bore off. (laughs) (laughs) And um, my family were living in London. Uh, I come from there. I'm London born and bred. And my father was coming to the end of his career and he was winding down a little bit and he had all these plans for great adventures. He'd worked really hard. They hadn't been very financially successful, but they were now comfortable and I thought I'm gonna work a bit less I'm gonna take more vacations I'm gonna go and see things and visit friends and it was lovely to hear them talk about how their life was gonna change but unfortunately he got a cancer diagnosis and I went back to London to be with him and it was a very serious cancer and he died within three months
2: and I realized that it was later than I thought that's shocking three yeah. months yeah but the takeaway for you was he had dreams deferred yeah and you had a dream I did. So this this life in corporate finance
3: allowed me great access into different parts of the world that I would never have seen. And I used to visit China and Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, I first tasted oolong tea, a tai Kuan yin, the iron goddess of mercy. And she... She made me fall in love. And I thought, oh, my God, I've, I'm British. I've been drinking tea all my life. And, you know, people have this impression that British people drink good tea. That is bullshit. We drink terrible tea. We drink fucking awful industrial tea. You know, if you think if you think of, like, um, instant coffee and a coffee bean, there's a big difference. And I've been drinking pretty much the whole of my life, like an instant, you know, an industrial processed tea stuffed in a bag unthoughtfully. And then I, in China, people revere and love tea the way the British used to that's a whole other long story and I fell in love and I was able to visit all these incredible places where tea was still grown and crafted the same way it had been for millennia you did that while you were still working yeah so I I fell in love with it and I started to be I had access to travel I was there in China I wasn't very sensible like a sensible thoughtful cautious person wouldn't have done the things I did. And if you, if I was inviting someone now, I was like, no, don't do that. But, what did you do? Well, China was just starting to open up. And before the turn of the millennia, you really couldn't visit places in China outside of where the government allowed you to go. So pretty much the cities. But things were sort of softening. And I was there and I knew people. And I hired a driver to go places. And then I realized, well, maybe I could hire that driver to go a little bit further afield. And I'd read about these terroirs for tea, You know, all the things you know about wine are true of tea. And I knew that this white tea that I tried was in Fuding, in Fujian province. Up in the mountains, it was like going back millennia. You know, there was no factories, no roads, no power cables. And I found this tea the same way, the same place, the same crafting methods. And I didn't speak any Chinese.
2: And the, the foolish part, I suppose, was I mean, you went with two pieces of paper, right? Yeah. You, you went with one piece of paper that was like, Hi, I'm trying to find this estate. What's, what was on the second piece of paper? Um, I can't remember exactly the words. It was one was, I'm looking for a farm that makes
3: this tea. And then when I got there, I'm looking for this tea. Do you grow it? Can I see it? And I see it? <laughs> yeah. um, and it said very clearly, I'm not buying this. I just, I, I would only like to buy a little bit in case they thought I was some, you know, going to change their lives, like, you know, the man from Del Monte.
2: <laughs> that would be quite a different story. Yeah, well,
3: that's eventually what happened. You know, I did make friends with this guy and then I came back later when I had a tea company
2: to buy his tea properly. That just, can we just pause there? It seems so random. I mean, was that just the greatest connection and you knew it was going to be a great connection and worth your trip in a you know
3: when well, no, I was investigating I wanted to find the places like imagine you were I think I say this in the book imagine you were in love with wine you started to fall in love with wine but there'd been a revolution in France and people weren't allowed into the rural communities and so you read about champagne for instance and you'd seen that there was this credible old-fashioned technique for making it sparkling and they used a special grape and there were these all these different chateaus and that one field from another produced different wine and you, you don't really want it you maybe tried it but you maybe only tried a kind of big brand and you were looking for something a little bit more artisanal so this in this time in China I was actually able to go to Champagne I was able to visit these gardens which hadn't been visited for years and years and years I and mean, you couldn't get these kinds of tea they hadn't been trading after well the, the actual cultural revolution, or the revolution, Chinese revolution, Mao's revolution, and the cultural revolution had really stopped things. And then the Second World War, there was no tea coming out of China, really tiny amounts.
2: So when you went to see these beautiful tea gardens, literally no one had gone up to anyone there and said... I value what you do.
3: Yep. So they're, they're, and certainly not to direct source. So people might have been buying tea from a broker somewhere in Beijing, but not visiting the gardens. That hadn't been done for generations and generations. People, I looked really scary. They were like, I'd never seen a white person before. She's crazy looking. And people, yeah, it was, it was a fun adventure. But I wanted to find these places and I was a super fan. But I was thinking, well, maybe if I went here, maybe I could do this. And I was in logistics. You know, I thought, well, I could make this happen if I could find these guys and I could go to source. And I had the idea that this
2: would be something, but it wasn't a real strong determination. And how did you figure out all those logistics? It just seems like, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't speak English, you don't speak Chinese, and no one's reached them for a century yeah, um, I've got to give you a story. One time
3: we were doing a document, a financial document, a big merger between two companies, and the the document needed to be on the stock exchange, in front of the head of the stock exchange, at the same time, simultaneously, in New York and London. And we'd missed the deadline for um, getting it to New York. And we had to find a solution. And it, well, there wasn't a solution. There was, you know, well, we can't do it, we can't. You can't even onboard courier. Someone can't take the document because the plane's not going to get there in time. So we hired Concorde. That's
2: a really good solution. And, <laughs> and for anyone who's too young to know, Concorde was a super fast plane that doesn't exist anymore.
3: No, but I mean, it probably, I mean, I can't remember the cost, but it was in the millions of dollars to hire Concorde because, you know, it was a the whole airplane just to take a document. But it was going to be the the alternative or or close to a million dollars or something around there the alternative was going to be, you know, catastrophe. So there wasn't, you weren't really allowed to have a no solution answer. So that, I'm glad I learned that from, from corporate work. And I I just thought, well, okay, there's going to be a solution because this has been done before. We'll find a way. And at the time, um, the Chinese government wouldn't allow the farmers to export. So I had to find someone who would organize the export for me. So I would buy from the farmer, then he would have to sell it to, together we would sell it to an export company and then he would arrange for it to get all its
2: stamps and then um, it would be exported. You were working in finance. You had a a dream of doing tea and you'd actually done quite a bit of research and gotten as far as a plan. And then in, in 2004, you launched the company. What was it like to launch with so many things that no one had ever seen before.
3: I was so naive. I thought, oh, this is a perfectly sensible job. Everyone told me I was crazy, right? Because Britain drinks tea bags. And there was 98% or something of British people were drinking tea from a tea bag. And I wanted to sell high-end, loose-leaf tea. No customer base, no market. But I had this naive belief that people like tea. So if I give them really good tea, we'll be fine. I also so stupidly thought, I don't have to do all the long meetings and the wasteful emails and all the nonsense of corporate. I won't have to work that hard. You know, if I work as hard as I work
2: in eight hours a day, that will be done. And what did you, did you start with? How many teas did you begin with? I had uh, five teas, five Chinese teas. And only Chinese teas. Yeah. And how did people even find out about these loose-leaf teas. Well, I had this plan I was going to go into
3: retail, and we were going to have... There was a large budget for marketing, and things didn't go quite as I planned. So honestly going back to where we were, I got back from my first sourcing trip, buying the tea, it arrived, and then, well, even before, actually before I'd left, I'd found a lump in my breast, and I'd, I'd gone to the hospital to get it checked, and they were like, you're young, it'll be nothing. I was in my early 30s, I was like 32, uh, I said, I'm going on this big trip. I said, yeah, you know, go on the trip, and when you get back, we'll, we'll test it. And, um, and it turned out to be a very um, aggressive form of cancer. And I, after getting back, I did the test, and then three days later I started chemotherapy because they, so, they, were, they were so worried that it was spreading very quickly.
2: And also they lost a bit of time yeah. <laughs> as you went off on your sourcing yeah. trip. And how was it starting a business under those conditions well I had to throw in my business plan because you can't
3: sell tea to someone with no eyelashes and no hair and you know there's a, when you're young they have to give you very aggressive uh, chemotherapy because your cells are dividing very fast so and you're strong so you can handle it as well I was very strong very healthy I've never actually I never get sick <laughs> I'm really healthy apart from the fact that I have cancer twice um so I had it was it was I was I was exhausted, so it doesn't make you feel great. But I had something to focus on, which was really great. So I had to rethink the plan, and I thought, okay, I'll set up an internet business. And back in um, the early two thousands, there wasn't really that much internet business either. So it was that was quite an interesting thing to develop. And in those days, you had to like build all the code behind it, and you know, you,
2: it wasn't just like a nice plug-in and package. What was that like feeling like you had this dream, you were chasing after it, and now you were pushed off your track?
3: I think cancer is very frightening for other people. But when you're in it, it's just your, it's your, it's your reality. You're like, OK, got to get on with stuff. And um, I was really grateful to have something to get on with. Some people said it was very unlucky. Oh, you gave up your job, your health care, and now you've got cancer and I'm very lucky to be British and we have the National Health Service and they looked after me completely. And I, you know, a lot of hospital appointments when, you, when you're pretty sick and you get institutionalised quite quickly. Your life is regimented by hospital appointments and tests and treatments. And I had my BlackBerry. God, I'm so old. I, I had my BlackBerry and I was emailing farmers and setting up an internet and doing all sorts of weird tech to try and set up the back end of the website. And so my focus was, was in something quite positive. I was building something, and I met a lot of people who were in treatment at the same time as me who didn't
2: have that. They be, the Illness became the most interesting thing about them, and that's, that's tough. And the pivot, moving from, here's your business plan. It really had been in your head for so long, and then you had to pivot. Was that hard, or what is, was it like You know, hiring the Concord for a million bucks? You're like it's going to happen. This is how it's going to happen. And actually, what an interesting way to start, right? Because you were doing something again, that other people weren't really doing. It was really
3: kind of wonderful in a way, because it was so small, it was so nascent internet businesses, but there was no leaf tea out there. So one person would find it, and then they would tell someone else. And there were tiny little pieces in the press, little tiny things, or somehow, word of mouth was great, like, um, Peachtree City, in Georgia, somebody found my tea in Peachtree City, and then they told all their friends. And I used to get this little cluster of orders from Peachtree City, and I would know these people because there was only a handful of them. And I would email them, say, "Thank you for buying my tea. That's great. And what do you like? And how are you enjoying it?" And they would email me back, and we. When I had this little connect kind of network of tea lovers, and they have been so loyal, and they still buy my tea, you know, sixteen years later. But there was a time when I had a big contract to make a tea for the Royal Air Force. So, yeah, it's a kind of amazing thing. And it was really going to champion a couple of my farms I was really proud of, and it was going to be good volume for them. And I had the contract to sell it to a supermarket, you know, a big um, grocery store. It was extraordinary, but I didn't have the money to buy the tea. And I went to the bank oh, and this is a recession. They were like, ha ha, ha no chance. It's funny to you. Because know, if you'd asked us a couple of years ago before the financial crash, we'd have loaned you five times the money, but now you can sling your hook. Oh. And so I, there was no crowdfunding in those days. I was like, how am I going to do it? I need to buy this. Uh, and I also, I, I was in breach of contract because I had agreed to, to sell this tea and I'd, put in the orders with the farmers and like I couldn't fail so I went to my customers and I said look can I borrow a couple of grand from you Um, and as soon as the tea arrives and I've made the first sale I'll be able to pay you back and I've got the customer the bank says um, I can't sell it but I've got the tea and I've got the route to market so it's safe I didn't feel worried that I would be able to pay them back and they all said yeah and none of them charged me any interest or anything so all these little people around the world who are tea lovers lent me the money so it was crowdfunding but it was before crowdfunding
2: Again, <laughs> you're so far out ahead of the curve. You started with one farm in China. Did you do a lot of comparative tastings? I mean, did you, you know, you went, you knew that was exceptional. Did you feel like your palate was trained over the years so that you knew what exceptional meant, or was it the time in Hong Kong mm-hmm. where you knew what exceptional was? Because I, I know that you know one of the reasons people love your teas is that they're, they're the best. Because they're the because they're, they're different. They have a really strong point of view. Um, that's a really interesting question.
3: Because at the beginning. Um I, you know, I fell in love. I completely fell in love with some of these teas. And actually it wasn't just one farm. I went around, there was a few farms I was buying from. So it was really interesting visiting little people along the way in the same areas because tea in China very famously comes from an area. So Taiguan Oolong comes from Angxi and it doesn't come from somewhere else. So you go to the area and you meet the people. And I was looking for farmers who didn't use um, pesticides and herbicides. And that was very easy to see by the diverse uh, flora and fauna. Testing sometimes in China is a bit dodgy and certification can be a bit dodgy, but you can see when you're there on the garden if there are weeds and birds and butterflies. and So it was just fantastic going and meeting all these people and trying their teas. And, you know, I, when I said I wanted to make a different business than corporate business, I wanted to do a business with people I liked. So I, if I liked them and the tea tasted great... The worst thing over the years now is when somebody sends me some tea and they're you know lovely farmer somewhere in the world, you know some tiny garden somewhere and they're really trying hard and they you know and they send me tea and it's no good. That really breaks my heart because I it has to taste good at the beginning. But I get the privilege of going
2: and trying and finding and spending time with them. So you got a, a package. that that had colourful stamps. Yeah, completely covered in stamps. Covered in stamps that had come all the way from Malawi. And you're like, hmm. I thought it was just commodity tea. I thought, oh, Malawi produces the shit
3: tea that goes into tea bags. So, I mean, how narrow-minded I was, and someone who loves tea to be that narrow-minded, never thinking, well, it's a plant, it could be processed in any way. You know, you can craft a grape into uh, something that goes into a cask with a, um, you know, in a plastic bag, or you can grow this, the craft craft the same grape into some beautiful,
2: exquisite wine, and the same is true of tea. And so, you opened this stamp-covered envelope. Well, it was worse wh- than that. It was, it was a little wh- box, and it
3: only had on it Henrietta Lovell, Rare Tea Company, London. No, yeah, he'd read about me in Time magazine. Someone had done a piece in Time, and he's sitting on a mountainside somewhere in the Shire Highlands of Malawi, and he read. Time Magazine. You know, actually read it cover to cover and he's read about this woman sourcing great teas, like great route to market, but I don't have her address. And he didn't have internet. So he sent it to me in London. He knew that's where it was. So I was thinking, oh man, this is going to be, what is this? And then I opened the box covered in stamps and it was made from a cereal packet, like a cornflakes packet. And I was, oh man, there's a little bag of black tea in there. And I was like, I, I was expecting, I had very low expectations, but I did taste it because... I felt the responsibility, this is a farmer's crop. I mean, I've got to taste it. I can't just dismiss it out of hand. So it was a black tea, so I was OK, good, black tea. I love black tea. And I thought, also I started to blend English breakfast this time. And we think of English breakfast sometimes as ordinary tea, builder's tea, shit tea, you know, just not good tea. But the creation of English breakfast originally was to be something better than the sum of its parts. So I wanted to reinvent English breakfast by putting beautiful teas in there, But I didn't have a really good malty Assamica base. I was really looking for that and something that would be able to handle milk because milk proteins soften the tannins and so you need something with a lot of tannin. And British people drink tea with milk, so I needed it. But also Americans love strong tea and Russians love strong tea. and So I was looking for that that yin to the yang of, of Chinese tea and when I put the tea in my cup and I made it, it was absolutely everything beyond way beyond i could have hoped for or imagined it's you know his tears absolutely extraordinary and i i remember i just i put my coat on i ran outside i went and bought milk i put the milk in it and it was like fuck, i've got it <laughs> you know it flooded my life with pleasure from that day and i you know I, I bought the first time i i bought something like 30 kilos or something and i think this year we bought like four seven, no, seven tons
2: wow that's a lot, and you're keeping a lot of people in his community. Oh, it's, it's, it's a drop
3: in the ocean, though. It's a drop. We need to do so much more. I've been working, you know, for 16 years or something at Red Tea, and then the research before that, and we're still a long way off um, making good tea normal to people. You know, when you buy cheese, and then you're in the grocery store, and there's cheese, and there's the uh, single slice in a plastic wrapper and then there is the beautiful artisanal cheese from a farm it's not difficult for anybody to think okay well there's nothing wrong with putting a slice of that on my hamburger here and there but if i want good cheese i'll pay a bit more and you know and they don't feel that that's in any kind of way a snobbery or an effetness. but with tea we're still in this industrial age where it's good enough i buy it by its cheapness I just pick up a box from the shelf. I don't really think about where it comes from. I'm not looking for this exquisite flavor thing, and it really hurts. It really hurts when I go to the grocery store and I see all this rubbish tea with flavorings on it. You know, it's like, oh man, this is you know, it's it's not helping anybody. It's not helping the customer. It's not helping the grocery store. It's not helping the farmer.
2: Let's just talk about tea and tea snobbery. Yeah, you've you've mentioned that people are snobs about tea. They're snobs about. Um, Point of origin, you know, whether it comes from Darjeeling or whether it comes from China or Japan or Nepal or Taiwan, can you tell me what the incorrect hierarchy is? Like this is what people think, yeah, and then correct that misperception. Yeah, that's a brilliant question. If it's ever asked me that question, that's a
3: really wonderful thing. I think I'd like to go back just one step into the cultural reason for the snobbery before I answer your question. I think it will will make sense. During the Second World War, tea became um, rationed. There was a war on, international trade broke down, but the British government was so concerned that we couldn't win a war with no tea that they took over supply. And so you no longer went to the grocery store as you would go to the wine shop and buy the tea you could afford because tea used to have a high value to us. We used to buy what we could afford. So in the US and in Britain, people spent more of their income on tea than alcohol before the Second World War. But during the war, there was only soldiers' tea. The you know, government was buying contract tea for a price. This is where it started to get commodified. And you went to the grocer and you were given your pack of soldiers' tea and you were only given a certain weight and you didn't complain. There was a war on, you have your tea, and it was black tea made as cheaply as possible. It was very bitter. People started to put milk in it. They used boiling water. All the kind of bastardizations of tea that happened became because of that. But it was an amazing time as well because we got rid of the whole upstairs, downstairs, Toffs and servants world. We all worked together, British people, uh, Americans. The world became much more egalitarian. And the Duchess of Devonshire and the coal miner had the same tea. Everyone worked together and we achieved a great result. And people were, God, this is great. And from that came... National Health Service, free healthcare for everyone, free education for everyone, unemployment benefit, the welfare state that we enjoy today, which, keeps, which saved me from, having, from dying of cancer. That egalitarian uh, principle is seen, I think, a little bit in tea. And if I was to then go back to drinking nice tea, because I have a bit more cash, then I am in some way betraying that time that egalitarian egalitarian principle. And I often get this concept of posh tea. Oh, that's posh tea, that's elite tea. Not just here, sorry, not just in Britain, but here in America. There's no betrayal of of our less fortunate neighbours and friends because tea, good tea, is only a few cents more a cup. We're not talking about buying a bottle of Chateau Lafitte here. It's going to, you know, in New York City, a coffee is probably costing you $7 or $5, and we're talking about maybe one or two more dollars for the packet or but definitely when you take it down to the cup uh price point it's a few cents the real betrayal is our brothers and sisters in india and east africa because it's not just east africa where that life expectancy is so low it's also in places like Assam, where the bulk of you know industrial teas are coming from so that's the that's the snobbery there is no snobbery in drinking good tea for pleasure for beauty there's no posh tea that's then the other side of it, you've got your like your tea snobs who would only drink... Oh, I only drink Darjeeling. Um, and I think that there's a world out there to discover you should choose for flavour and you should adventure and experiment because, you know, I I know from my own stupidity that it led me to great pleasure. The, and don't be put off by, by people saying, oh, well, the best green tea is from here or the best white tea is from here because there is no best. There's best for you. Like, for some people... The Rieslings from New Zealand are superior to those from Austria, and they're not wrong. And it's really interesting because I, going back to the snobbery thing, uh, or the elitist thing, there is kind of one kind of elitist tea. I make bespoke blends for people. If you've got very deep pockets, um, I will blend for you your own tea. So I do it for some restaurants, like I make a tea for Claridge's in London and I make teas for Noma every season in Copenhagen. But I also do it for private individuals, sports stars, Hollywood actresses, billionaire princes. And um, I have to re-blend it every season because the flavour profiles change. Well, the flavour profiles change, but the harvests change. So it's a big work. Which is why it's expensive. I have to go and reblend it every single season, and re- because you know there'll be a little bit more sunshine on that area that in that season on that farm which is a hugely important part of the blend and I might have to go to a different field a different part of the farm or even a different farm in the same area to get the same
2: profile I just need to know like someone a celebrity will say I'd like a floral tea like how do they even know so first they come to my
3: office and that's what I was going to say how do you choose a tea they come to my office and I have a tasting room or in very special occasions I go to them we'll sit down and we'll do a tasting because they'll say this is the kind of tea I like so they'll say I like green tea or I like very strong black tea And I said, okay, so we're going to start at a different place just to see what your flavor profile is. So if you say you like black tea, I might start with white tea. Or if you say you like white tea, I might start with black tea. Lots of different ways of doing it. But generally, you start with the lighter ones because it gets more tannic. And we try lots of different teas. And it's super interesting because of all the years I've been doing this, only one person has ever come out with a tea that they originally thought they were going to have so it's super interesting i also break all the rules generally tea has been blended like you know english breakfast is a blend of black tea but um there's a there's a bakery in copenhagen run by a man called richard hart who is probably the best baker in the world and he's a bit of a revolutionary and he said Henrietta, he's cockney he said (laughs) my uh my he he used to be the head baker at tartine in san francisco so people often think he's american but he's actually from the wrong side of the tracks in london and he said my favorite tea's is a genmaicha, which is a japanese scent with toasted brown rice and a really strong English breakfast. And um, I want them together. I like that. That's what I want my blend. I was like, no, Richard, you can't. You can't do that. It's just, no, it's not going to work. And uh, he said, well, let's give it a try. So I give it a try, and, and sure enough, it's amazing. And we've managed through... A, it was, well, It's probably the hardest blend I've ever done. It's taken so many iterations to get it right. So it was super... And then we ended up... Um, uh, but there's toasted rice in there, right, in my So what's he wanting? Well, he wants that comforting um, breakfast cereal, popcorn. So um, it's, this is really her- heretical, and people, tea snobs around the world right now listening to this will be like, she's just blown it for us. We're never going to respect another word she says. But for Richard, I put uh, Rice Krispies in there. Ground? Or a no. whole. No, they go into the pot. They can't be blended either because they're completely different you know, weight. And so when you go to Heart Bakery in Copenhagen, they will put Rice Krispies into your teapot. So it's, strictly speaking, I'm not doing it. But, um, and I could never
2: condone such a thing. If you gave someone a tasting set so that they could understand um, what tea they like to open their minds, what, what set of teas would you give them to Ooh. try? Well, at first I would say, like, you've tried green
3: tea and you thought it was disgusting and it was really bitter and horrible and you're like, I just don't like green tea. That would be like saying, I tried some white wine once from, I don't know, maybe it wasn't in the fridge, maybe it was warm, maybe it was a screw top, maybe it was from a cask, maybe it wasn't that good and I didn't like it so I'm never going to drink white wine again. I would, the most important way to choose your tea is to see the person who, who's selling it to you, do they know where it comes from? Do they know the name of the farm? Do they know the name of the field? Is this a trade of, of uh, work with an artisan like you would want to know about your meat, I hope. And, um, you know, when you go to the farmer's market, Union square and you can meet the farmer and how great is that arugula when you've tasted it and you know where it's come from in the field. But for, for tea, it really matters because of that economic relationship. How long should one keep tea? Once you've opened it, not more than about three months. Well, see, if it's in a sealed packet and it's been really carefully stored, it's got very, very long shelf life, years. But as soon as the air gets in, it's starting to deteriorate, and you must keep it airtight. If it comes in a non-airtight packaging, don't buy it, because it's probably ruined before you get it. If it's in paper, it's fucked. If it's in a paper bag, if it's in any kind of tea bag, don't buy it. I mean, I really believe that strongly. Number one, I'm sure you've been reading about the nanoplastics and. It's more important that nobody who really loves tea would put it in a bag. It's like you don't put baby in the corner. (laughs) She needs room to unfurl. She's a dried herb. You know, she's going to expand and expand and expand as she hits water. So she needs room. So a teapot is a perfect vessel. And it's giving it... Uh, the, every pore, every part of the surface area of the leaf is hitting the water and expanding and you're extracting great flavor from it. Inside a bag, it's stuffed in there. It's stu- it can't expand properly. But also it's made for convenience, not for love. And it's not difficult. A teapot is 3,000-year-old at least technology. You know, people have been able to use it for that long and you're saying now in your sophisticated life you can't. And everyone can use
2: a bloody French press. With that, we're going to take a quick break and... When we come back, uh, we'll hear more from the extraordinary, revolutionary Henrietta Lovell.
1: This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas— Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com.
0: Join Heritage Radio Network on Monday, November 11th for a raucous feast to toast a decade of food radio. Our 10th anniversary Bacchanal is a rare gathering of your favorite chefs, mixologists, storytellers, thought leaders, and culinary masterminds. We'll salute the inductees of the newly minted HRN Hall of Fame, who embody our mission to further equity, sustainability, and deliciousness. Explore the beautiful Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe, taste and imbibe to your heart's content, and bid on once-in-a-lifetime experiences and tasty gifts for any budget at our silent auction. Tickets available now at heritageradionetwork.org/gala.
2: Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. And today, my guest is Henrietta Lovell, who's taken us to Malawi and China. And I want to hear more about some of your trips, because I think it's part of what has inspired you to do this work, to meet the people. I want to know the most shocking or dangerous trip that you took. Oh, shocking, dangerous.
3: I love those things. You know, it's funny because I'm not a young woman anymore in the sense that I'm not in my 20s, but I feel like a young woman in my 40s. I feel really um, most childlike when I'm off on an adventure. And you know how kids are quite fearless I find when I've left London behind and I'm going somewhere and I don't really know how it's going to end up, I feel that huge joy of excitement of adventuring. It's liberating, it's not terrifying. It all the sort of existential angst go away. I'm not no longer worrying if we're gonna meet the, you know, rent or the payroll, the bills and everyone's mortgages and farmers. I'm I'm really there. Like how am I gonna get there? What's the is someone gonna be there to meet me? Am I gonna find somewhere to stay? Is the is it gonna be dangerous? But I'm in such a lovely world of of farmers that I'm always so well taken care of. You know, the farmers are people agricultural communities around the world are generally really good, gentle people. And I've never really got into I shouldn't say that, I'm touching wood, but you know, I've I've found myself sort of lost in the wrong place at the wrong time, but never in a place where I felt threatened or But there was a time actually in South Africa where I was where it was quite shocking because not because of the things you think that you know there is poverty in south africa and there's crime in south africa but i really got well i've been struck by lightning and i was in a lightning storm and i i find that quite challenging because it thrills me to be in a lightning storm i'm a better conductor than everybody else so if it's going to hit something once you've been hit you know lightning finds the the shortest route to earth and um and it was it was a proper rainstorm in the mountains of the cederberg uh, with lightning thunder and lightning all around us and I tell you when you once you have been struck by lightning you know that that's that's not something you want to be
2: repeated once it's happened once and and you had a, a cancer relapse also mm-hmm. i mean not that being struck by lightning twice and getting cancer twice are the same but sometimes yeah you know that could you know it's not when something's happened to
3: you it's a reality yeah it's a real i feel like cancer though is a is history i really do i'm i've i had cancer once it I had it um, a second time not that long ago, and um, I, it was, the treatment was much, much less severe. I, they called it early, and I, I took some preventative measures not to get it again. And um, I think, you know, some people get cancer in their older life, some people get it younger. I was lucky enough to have it when I was young, and um, I'm
2: going to live to 150 now. Uh, you have done a lot with tea cocktails and iced tea, both places where you think, does the tea really matter? Yeah, matters so much, especially iced tea. So that traditional iced tea, we remember diner coffee.
3: When I used to live in New York back in the uh, yeah, time of the millennium, 2000, coffee in a diner for brunch was just refillable and sort of watery. And, but now you're going to get a beautifully made coffee and you're to wait for it. And you, you've, you're not, not surprised by that. Um, tea is having that renaissance um, but iced tea is still, unfortunately, often just that cheap thing that you think is going to be refillable and doesn't really have much flavour, but it's sort of, OK, it's just iced tea. But I started working with Jave Chang at Momofuka and he said, I want to do a really fucking amazing iced tea and I don't want any hot tea, Henrietta. And I I just thought of it as this, you know, strong black tea, loads of sugar. So we started investigating how to make it really good. Obviously, use great tea, but it oxidises, you know, it starts to go after 20 minutes by the time it's got chilled it's ruined it's ruining and it gets worse and worse and worse and the sugar doesn't stop it from oxidizing it just marks the flavor of the oxidization so we had to find a new method of making it and that's when we started cold extracting which is becoming quite famous now but we've say i the pioneer of cold
2: extraction tea Hooray! (laughs) um can you tell us briefly your tea rituals of the day
3: it depends where i am but if let's say I'm let's say you're home home on Sunday oh, sure lovely okay so my first one is bed tea so you've got to go back to bed with your first cup of tea to just, you, once you've got um, a lovely method of making it the way you like it you can do it with your eyes closed you can you know, hardly wake up sit through the kettle make your tea come back to bed and by the time you get back to bed hopefully it will be infused the way you like it you might have to wait a moment you pour it you enjoy your tea and gently wake up with the tea that beautiful moment if oh, that's that's the best moment of the whole day and then that lovely tea can be infused again and again through the morning and then levens yeah, is when um, I like to have my breakfast I don't want to eat first thing in the morning so then I have a tea to go with food and I'll choose my tea by what I'm going to have for my elevenses and then um, I'll probably drink a couple of infusions of that because I'm not going to let the leaves go to waste you keep infusing beautiful tea she has so much to give and then i I often have, um, well, I pretty much always have tea with lunch. So I'll choose a tea to go with my food. And um, if it's a, in the summer, I'll have a nice tea. I'll have, I'll have a free thought that out. Or if it's a, um, a winter's day, you know, you will be really surprised how delicious oolong is with food. You know, all the oolongs, they dance so well with food. They, they marry. It's really, you can do cheese, you can do sweet, you can do savoury, you can do bitter. The one thing that tea doesn't really work very well with is sour. You've got to be more careful. You might want to go more for herbs.
2: And then tea in the evening, tea sen?
3: Um, so afternoon tea. I mean, I don't have like sit-down formal afternoon tea every day, but I always have tea in the afternoon because that's when you need that pick-me-up. But I'll go for a more caffeinated tea then. I'd I'd look for something like a and, or I, and I often drink it quite short like an espresso. I'll do lots of little expressions of a, of a tea to really get lots of flavour and lots of caffeine and lots of joy out of it. And then... You know that. Sorry, that'll take me through the afternoon, and then into. I have been known to make quite a few cocktails. But imagine taking a depressant, alcohol, and adding a stimulant tea to it. It is the thinking woman's vodka Red Bull.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, on the show, I always ask my guests for a. A product that is better than advertised. Like people know that it's good but you're like, I know it's great. Okay, so there's uh something that um people in
3: um USA are not necessarily very faith with, but they know that these are good and they're like, Yeah, okay, I get it, you know, a kettle, electric kettle. A stovetop kettle is fucking pants. You don't need a stovetop kettle. It might look nice, but it's going to take a lot of power and it takes time. And you can't get the temperature you want. Whereas an electric kettle with a um, a temperature control will save your life. Also, you don't have to fill it up to the top. You just put a small amount of water in so you never waste water. You never waste power. You can just put in as much as you need to make. And there's one made by Bon Vita. And you can often see them with a swan neck that the coffee geeks use, but they have one that's just a normal kettle shape for tea. But those ones are super accurate. There are other ones on the market, expansive ones, fancy ones that we test all the time in the office to make sure that they are what they the temperature's right, but they're not, they're very inaccurate. The Bon Vita stops before it reaches the temperature and then tests the temperature inside the kettle and then goes up or, you know, if it needs to. So you will get a very precise
2: measurement. Okay. And Is there a woman who you'd like to give a shout out broadly to? Someone who you admire and someone who you think the whole world needs to know about? Yeah, there's a lady called Daisy
3: Belfield Santos. And um, I met her in Malawi. She uh, She has a classics degree from Cambridge. So that's like a law degree from Harvard. She's incredibly bright and intelligent, and she was working in an orphanage in a cultural centre in Malawi. And Daisy thought, well, if I'm going to make a difference here, I need to stay here for a long time. So she worked in schools and orphanages and places, and she le- learnt about education in marginalised rural communities and how to transform societies. And um, we used to work with Fairtrade, um, an organisation that um, helps farmers um, in trade practices, and we found that Fairtrade's organisation was taking 80% of the money we raised... For the running of fair trade, with so i going to do this. So a while ago, I set up a charity that exists now. It's very separate from my business. It's called Rare Charity, of which I'm just a trustee, and it supports tertiary education in rural communities in agricultural communities based around tea. It's much broader and wider and developed. And Daisy has taken this charity into something really meaningful and wonderful. And when I, when we first, when the trustees first employed her. We said, look, it was only a part-time role. And she didn't have any other work. She said, I can't do any other work because I need to give my whole life to this. So she just worked full-time on a part-time wage. And she just moved back from Malawi. She had no money. She had no place to live. She had a husband. She needed support too because he didn't have a job. And so they managed to live in London on a part-time wage, low charity wage. Unbelievable. I mean, like, who would do that? And she has transformed. She is transforming people's lives and communities and she has such drive and passion to do that. And people often think it's kind of naive to do something in that sector, especially when you, she could walk into any job. But she really believes she can change the world for better. And the charity is called? It's called Rare Charity. Rare charity. Yeah, have a look online, she's amazing. Small now, she's very keen on doing it. Super small to make sure we don't make a mistake, that we grow it properly and carefully and slowly so we have you know a handful of university students now that we take all the way through university and now we start she's starting to do um, secondary school education in one community and then that model can be taken to all
2: different communities and with that thought I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of Speaking Broadly my guest has been Henrietta Lovell you have to read her book Infused it's filled with adventures and it is a love letter. Is there any greater love in your life than tea?
3: What a question. My love. My love. The man I love. I, I love it. equally. Do I love him more than tea? If I had to chill? Oh, okay. I love him more.
2: <laughs> tough one. He's going to hate me. <laughs> Thank you, Ajit, for being an amazing engineer today. Nina, as always, for making my world go round. Thanks, all of you listeners, for your great feedback As you know, I'd love hearing from you. You can uh, Instagram, DM me. I always love hearing from you, suggestions, recommendations. And Henrietta, how can people find you? Um, I'm on Instagram as Rare Tea Lady. And um, yeah, through my company, Rare Tea Company. And you know where to find me at Speaking Broadly on Instagram. is probably the best way to go. Have a great week.